0: and Welcome to Holsch Fidelity. Tonight we have episode 7 and the artist we're featuring tonight is James Newell Osterberg Jr. Although some people refer to him as Iggy Pop. Emerging at the tail end of the hippie era with a fittingly unapologetic demeanour, Iggy Pop and his pioneering early work with the Stooges not only helped redefine the parameters of rock and roll, but also earned him... The Godfather father, Punk, father, punk title, title. title. With a characteristically raw and aggressive sound, Iggy's presence and performances epitomised the punk attitude, setting a rhythm for the 1970s. Pop is renowned for his energetic and often unpredictable stage presence. His performances were characterised by wild, frenetic behaviour. Including stage diving, self mutilation, and an uninhibited, raw style of singing that broke traditional boundaries. His confrontational and rebellious approach to music and performance set him apart as a groundbreaking figure in the punk movement. Some of Iggy Pop's most notable songs with the Stooges include I Want to Be Your Dog, Search and Destroy, and Raw Power. After the Stooges disbanded, Iggy embarked on a successful solo career, releasing albums like The Idiot, produced by David Bowie, and Lust for Life, which featured the hit title track. His music is characterised by its rawness, merging elements of rock, punk and alternative sounds. Iggy Pop's influence extends far beyond his music, his attitude, style and impact on the evolution of rock and punk music have cemented his status as a legendary and influential figure in the history of popular music. Now tonight, to pop his cherry on debut, I'm really proud to say this is one of my good mates, one of the best storytellers I know in my life. Welcome Pete.
1: Hey Tony, how are you buddy?
0: I'm good, mate. You must be pretty excited that your
1: first show is Iggy. Mate, it's an honour. I get to come on and talk about a living legend. So, Iggy Pop. Now, bugger, I'm just
0: going to go straight to it. You sent me a video a couple of weeks ago on stage dancing with the great man himself. Let's just go straight to that. How how was
1: that experience? Uh, So, dude, years ago, a long time ago when I was at school... I went to boarding school Long story Yeah, I was sat in my room With one of my mates And I saw this picture Of this bloke Bent backwards You know, his back looked broken at the base You know, he's bent backwards just a black and white picture It was Melody Maker as well And I was fascinated I was like, what is this? You know, who is that? Yeah, and then We read about him I learnt about Iggy I found out that it was Iggy and jumping all the way back to 2019 or forward, yeah. I mean, he invented the stage dive. Apparently, Jim Morrison fell into the crowd in 67 and Scott Ashton was there with him. And Iggy said, well, we can do better than that. (laughs) You know, so there's this fascination. I'm a kid. I'm looking at this guy bent backwards on the stage and... Yeah, you start reading about this dude that was f- scaring people on stage you know, he was it was frightening he was he was abrasive he wanted to scare people at these gigs so all this stuff i learned jumping all the way forward to 2019 he's coming to melbourne i'm like man this, this could be the last time i'm going to get to see him you know like this his music their music he he, he pushed the stooges in that direction because they wanted to do something different, and they achieved that, you know, and to get on stage with him, I mean, wow, and No Fun was playing as well, and that song was about the late 60s and 70s, and how it wasn't fun, you know, there was all these great bands out, but they weren't, change- they weren't doing anything different, you know, you had The Stone, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, there was all this cool stuff out, but they wanted to do something different, and... Oh boy, did they. (laughs) I was
0: reading about how his lyrics and essentially what he was conveying through his lyrics was so controversial at the time.
1: Oh, and he was the first one to do it, and he was singing about like sex and drugs and all these taboo subjects, and this was late 60s, early 70s. I mean, those first three albums, they didn't sell. No record company really wanted to sign them. People... They didn't want him at their clubs because, you know, he was rolling around in broken glass and, you know, exposing <laughs> himself on stage. You know, there's this, I read this story the other day. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, like, where he's he's got his penis out on top of an amp and it's just vibrating around on top of the amp. And he's just, you know, he's egging the crowd and he's trying to wind them up. He's trying to, He's trying to get them into a frenzy, you know. He wanted to not attack the crowd, but he wanted to, really involved the crowd because he saw Jim Morrison doing it and he said to Scott Ashton again we can do better than that you know, let's, let's, let's do something different and they, they did you know it's epic Like it, so to get on stage with this guy that again invented crowds he was the first one to crowd surf and walk out through crowds and chuck peanut butter at them and all these different things man like to get on stage with him was like I say, I've got the t-shirt on now I, didn't, I haven't washed it since now <laughs> but to get on stage when with, with him then was just... That's amazing, mate. You know, <laughs> got to groove with the man. You know, know?
0: I, I'm always just happy to, to say that I have went and saw so many great bands, but not once have I been on the stage with someone that's as prestigious as... And,
1: and, and to, to that, that it was Iggy as well. I mean, you, like I say, you go to gigs to be entertained, and but when you went to an Iggy gig back then, or a Stooges gig, it was for something different because it really was different. They were against the grain... They were always trying to wind the crowd up. You know, like, the stories that... I don't want to bang on too long about all the stories because it's just outrageous to be here for hours. But, you know, they they had a bike gang that used to follow them around Michigan and Detroit uh, a sort of protection, but also... Because on their final gig, that metallic KO gig that was recorded live, that's their final gig that they split up. It was just erupted into violence. One bike gang attacked them, knocked Iggy on his ass across the floor. But this other gang that was there was there to sort them out, but... That same gang, previous in the previous few years, used to follow them around and give out free quaaludes and free drugs at the gigs. You know, it was a circus. It was a freak show. It was just utterly Mm -hmm. insane. So, if you went to a Stooges gig back then, there's a good chance you were going to be given quaaludes and Christ knows what else. You know, it was just and that we're talking early seventies, late sixties. You know, when the Beatles and Zeppelin and Stones were all playing and singing. So yeah, it was really, really. No one had done it. It, they were the first ones to do it, and yeah, it was actually, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was unbelievable what they were doing. Pick up a book and read about it, guys. It's unbelievable.
0: You talk about the Stooges, and obviously their music was, it was that grimy, oh. raw, sort of aesthetic to it, and then he moved on and started his solo career, and it was highly influenced early on by David Bowie, and then... Even now, I think he's released an album in the last year.
1: Yeah, it was this year, yeah, this
0: year. This year. So, you know, it's it's been such a long journey for him. How do you think his music's evolved over that time?
1: Well, I, I read years ago that he, um, this was around his period of about 74, 75. He was trying to get clean because his drug addiction was just off. The, it was ridiculous. He went cross-eyed, you know, like he, he had a lot of psychiatric. He had to go, yeah, he had to go and check in. He had a lot of mental health problems, and um, but he said to Bowie in Berlin, "I want to do something different," you know. And uh, I mean, if you listen to the Idiot and Lust for Life, and then New Values, New Values is really underrated album. I strongly recommend that album too. That was sort of overlooked because Lust for Life was out in seventy seven, uh, New Values was seventy nine. But yeah, and that, then you've got he's done stuff with. New Order, which is really interesting because the bands that they've influenced is unbelievable. The three that stick out the most the, from the very start would be The Clash, Joy Division and Nirvana. So you, you, you've got three different genres of music there. But also off the back of the Stooges, you had the Ramones form and then the Sex Pistols and then not forgetting the, the Saints. The the, one, the Aussie, they were, there, they were their first like crowned punk band in my opinion. And then after that you got birthday party in Nick Cave two best Aussie bands in my opinion just my two cents so <laughs> so yeah so you got all those three important punk bands but not forgetting clash uh joy division and nirvana i mean that's three completely different genres of music and then you have talking heads it just goes off just if you start researching the Stooges and who they influenced it just gets silly it's just everyone bought those first three records uh, and he evolved. he like i said back back to peter hook and new order they recorded the new order uh, Rob Zombie, he's done lots of weird, strange French songs and all kinds of cool stuff. So he's definitely evolved and uh, he's done electro and, and all that sort of stuff, you know, really interesting. Yeah, I think his voice as well yeah. over the
0: years has really changed. It's much, mind. much deeper. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you were saying earlier, it's, it's similar to Johnny Cash. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. It's definitely matured, gotten deeper. When you hear him talking in documentaries, he's uh, he's still very articulate. I think he j- enjoys a glass... <laughs> of wine after shows now. He doesn't do what he used to do. Thai cheese all the time. He surfs. He I think he, he was saying in a documentary I watched recently that if he doesn't get in the ocean every day, at least once a day, he's not right. He needs to be swimming, surfing and yeah. So he's very still fit for a seventy six year old he is now. Seventy six. Seventy six. And yeah. like if you read I've read I've read Paul Trinker's book called Open Up and Bleed, it is you actually get a bit depressed reading it. You get the first two, three chapters are just you know, David Bowie's manager walks in and finds him on the floor bleeding with a needle hanging out of his arm and it's, like, it's actually really dark and you're like, you're kind of willing him on to live. You know, this great music's coming and you're flicking through the pages and you're like, dude, like, <laughs> stop it, you know? You're like, it's really dark. But in a lot of these songs that you listen to, somehow he maintained that double-edged sword with the drugs that he was on and a really good song. That he, like, he'd mixed the music with the actual what he was up to with his life and just mm. as, as wasted as he was to do that coherently is actually really impressive when you read what he was doing and how he strung the lyrics together to complete these songs. And again, he was the driving force Ron Ashton, the first guitarist for the Stooges. He didn't really know how to play. He just learned power chords about a year before they recorded the first album. He taught Scott, the drummer that how to play drums on the set of wow. 44 drums. He was a blues musician. He used to travel to Detroit and play with, some quite famous blues bands. And he was a really good blues drummer, you know. So he's actually a really good drummer before he became a frontman. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. Like how his music evolved is is unbelievable.
0: Mm, I've discovered over these last few weeks, listening and, and reading the lyrics for the first time, those those dark undertones and openness to the periods he was going through. It's just like he just lays it out yeah. before you in his oh. songs and when you understand what he's talking about, it, those songs just come through with so much more emphasis. Oh. You know, they're a real statement. And I hear those songs now, and I think, fuck, you know, that's that's exactly what was happening to this guy in his in guy to his and, life.
1: and no one was singing or doing that back then. Maybe the Velvet Underground, but like indirectly. But he he was the first one to just say, oh, well, "Yeah," like you just said, "This is how it is. This is what I'm. This is what we're doing." You know, it's just mm. insane. Unbelievable.
0: In not 1977, both The Idiot and Lust for Life was released, I believe. So two of his greatest albums, his first two solo albums yeah. released in the same year. And listening to them right through, they're so different in a lot of regards. Like it, it feels like The Idiot is, is a lot, a bit darker, a bit more industrial in parts. Definitely. And then the... Lust for Life album seems a touch more accessible. I don't know. I wouldn't say commercial, but it's definitely one that you could pick up and run with a lot oh. more easily than the idiot. The idiot is now definitely my favourite solo album of his. But it's before this, like I was more familiar with Lust for Life. Yeah,
1: because of it's, Train spotting. that la- relaunched his you know, his resurgence. And the idiot again. I think I, I've been thinking about his. I really like the idiot and new values. Those two albums are just they're, they're they're brilliant. The more and more you listen to them, the better they get. And again, uh, Ian Curtis from Joy Division, he stated the idiot is is an absolute classic. You know, like it is a brilliant album. It's why he put pen to paper. You
0: know? So if if you were on a de- deserted island and you could only have there's, there's electricity on this island and you've got a turntable and some speakers, <laughs> that's the only thing that you've got on this island, and you could take one of his records. Stooges or Solo Career, which record would you take with you for the last 50 years of your life?
1: I think because it's so exciting, I'd have to take Raw Power. Raw Power. The third, the third album. And the, out, the, and the outtakes, because the, again, that album. that Loophole. Be, yeah, loophole. there'll be a that, again, good segue there. <laughs> the special edition 3LP. Yeah, okay, Coming in the next hour, I promise. But yeah, that, that Raw Power album, I mean... Yeah, James Williamson was brought in on the second album as a second guitarist, but Ron was struggling, the first guitarist, and he unfortunately kind of demoted to bass. And there was a lot of, he was still pretty gutted about that to this day, but James Williamson was, he was a genius on the guitar. uh, And you can hear it in raw power. And it still sounds. I mean, those albums, I mean, they're 56, 54 and 52 or three years old. They're 50 plus years old. Mm -hmm. And they still sound (laughs) absolutely belted. I mean, you put it on, you crack, you got your earphones on or you're in the, coming home from work in the van, whatever. Boom! You know, you you crack them on and it's just like, man, that doesn't sound anything, that just sounds alien almost, you know. Brilliant albums, I love them. Absolutely awesome. Well,
0: I think it might be a good stage there to roll into our top fives because I've got a feeling you'll have some pretty cool stuff to discuss with with your tracks and hopefully you can add a little bit more substance with mine as well because I have only really dived in in the last couple of weeks and and it would be interesting to get your take on my five because I think you will know them, you know, like a brother. <laughs> so I, I really would appreciate to, to get your thoughts on those. Number five. My number five comes from 1977 on The Idiot, and the name of the song is Dumb Dumb Boys. Now, it's a lament to lost friends. In oh. particular, in this instance, his his life with the Stooges, so the band themselves and different characters. For me, I, I just feel, listening to it, it's it's really powerful and unflinching and sort of talking about these guys that they ha- he hasn't seen for, well, four years. They had this, the breakup and...
1: Well, he starts the track by introducing who's died. Yeah, yeah. It's really just, again, that confrontational thing we were talking about earlier. He just, there's no messing around. He He talks about People that have passed. And um, the main guy he's talking about in the opening of his sentence is the the drummer uh, Dave Alexander. You know, it's just unbelievable.
0: For me, like the guitar work on it, it really reflects that lamenting feeling through it. It's like a real swampy guitar, and it it kind of has like this dr- almost druggy strut to it. Yeah, yeah. know, it just sure. kicks along. And in all honesty, I think it's one of Iggy's most magnificent vocal performances of of any of his songs. He just, he's almost, you can hear the yearning in his voice for these guys. And this was a song following those four years that after the Stooges broke up and they went into this spiral with their drug addiction and all the rest of it. And this was just after he'd hit like his absolute lowest point and he went to somewhere in California, I think, to a mental institute for quite some time. And it was only... When David Bowie, who had befriended him, said, "Let's get out of here," Mm. you know, let's distance ourselves from the drug scene that we're in currently, because David Bowie was—he was struggling too. Was struggling and heavily into it as well. So they they took off to France, and then I think eventually they they got to Berlin. Correct. But they went to France first, and and together Bowie sort of helped him create this the the idiot album in 1977, which is also the same year that David Bowie put out Low. Which is an OK album in itself. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so anyway, this the David Bowie he, he, at this stage Iggy couldn't un, couldn't he had writer's block, didn't know what to, how to start this album and all the rest of it. And so David Bowie said, "Why don't you write the story of the Stooges?" And he said, "Oh, okay." So he, he started along a certain track and and was trying to almost document what they'd done into a song, but then hit it changed direction into essentially I you know, say how much he misses them. And, and it's uh, it, it so
1: sad. It's a brutal song. He misses his mates, you know, like these guys, he went to high school with them. He's I've read the, 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 again, that book by Paul Trinker. He, um, the Dum Dum boys is a term that they use for out. He used for the outcasts that they were back then, you know, he used to see them in front of this drugstore waiting for when they used to go to gigs and whatever. And, um, yeah, it's, he grew up with them and now they're all gone. They're all messed up, you know. It's, mm. a, it's a brutal song. It's an awesome track. I, I love the Dun Dun Boys. It's brilliant. Mm. I
0: know how you, just before you, you mentioned about the, the intro where you know, he's got that little piece, spoken word piece, and he, he says... What happened to Zeke? Oh, he's dead on a Jones, man.
1: How about Dave? Ah. Oh, he did on alcohol Oh, what's Rock doing? No, he's living with his mother.
0: How about James? He's gone straight. Yeah, so the first one, Zeke, he was a guy that was the roadie yeah. for the Stooges for several years, and then he came in and actually replaced the bassist <laughs> in 1970, so <laughs> I nice. think that's a story in itself. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's crazy, yeah. But
0: then he does pass by heroin overdose yeah. in 1973, and then... Dave, that you mentioned, died of pneumonia in 1975 after being hospitalized with alcohol-fueled pancreatitis. Yeah,
1: man, it was just.
0: But yeah, it's a really gloomy introduction. But then when the, the guitar and his quaking vocals come in, and, and just, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a quite a long song as well. Mm-hmm. But my favorite lyrics are: Things have been tough without the dumb, dumb boys. I can't seem to speak the language. Where are you now, my dumb, dumb boys? Are you alive or dead? have you left me
1: the last like fuck it's very confrontational and it's yeah it's sad wow. Fantastic tune. Great pick, mate. Number five. Wow. Thanks, mate. It <laughs> oh,
0: means a lot to me. Just uh, get off on the right note. So your number five, mate. Here we go. I'm really excited to hear
1: what you've got. Playing. My number five, again, it took me a while to really think. It's not that it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of tracks that I love, but I'm, I'm going to go with I Want to Be Your Dog. A classic. It's, yeah, it's the second track of the first album, and it is, I mean, If you listen to the music around in 69, then there was no guitars that sounded like that. It's just power chords and the content of the song. It's just the opening chord to that track is just this big, crunchy sound. and when you hear it live man it makes you it makes you wince it's like it sends a shiver down your spine and then when he comes on stage when, when we were in Melbourne a couple of years back there's these huge they've got the speakers turned on full and they've got dogs barking and snarling through the amps it's like <laughs> and you can hear drool and, drool, and it's really it's like, wow. it's like what is going on and then they and all the drums rolling. And it's like whoa! And then jumps Iggy, and he's barking like a dog, crawling across the stage. And it's it's still surprising and shocking, you know. It's still that that song, fifty six years old, and it's still a kick in the guts, you know. It just hits you hard, you know. Content of the song he's singing about wanting to be treated like a slut, basically you know, by a woman. He wants to be treated like a sexual slave, you know. Like, you know, and the sleigh bells and the piano. Uh, John Cale from the Velvet Underground. He um he he produced that record. I mean, that first Velvet Underground album, wowzers, that's a belter as, as well. But the fact that he jumped on board to create that album, uh, yeah, the sleigh bells. Are, <laughs> it's just. Iggy apparently found them in the studio and uh, just added it to the tune. Just Sleigh Bell's great. You know, I'm still trying to convince the kids that it's a Christmas song. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to the lyrics, kids. <laughs> That's, but, that
0: track got a, a bit of a kick uh, along as well when it was in Lockstock. Yeah,
1: Lockstock. It's been in a couple of movies, but Lockstock's the most famous one. And it's just the bass line as well. There's a few things with that song that really grab you. It's, it's actually a really sinister song. You know? When it starts moping along, and it picks up a bit of pace. Uh, Iggy always said he wanted to build the crowd up, build the crowd up. As soon as the solo kicks in, you know, a couple of minutes after, you know, when when the solo finally kicks in, he wanted to be in the crowd. He wanted to build them up, build them up, build them up into a frenzy with the big crunchy chainsaw guitars. And then as the solo hits, boom, you just wanted to be in the crowd crawling and surfing and whatever, you know, amazing stuff.
0: That solo. Now, the solo comes in quite late on the song. And this is, the song is amazing. I'm not taking anything away from the song. But I was listening to it and totally into it. I'm like the solo came on and I'm rocking out. And then it just finishes. It's sort of the solo seems oh, hey, oh, it's finished. I I didn't understand it was just such a, a powerful moment and I'm like, most songs at that point sort of usually come back to some little outro after the solo, but I'm like, oh, that's it. Yeah. So, but, man, it
1: is an incredibly, you know. It still I, carries that big oh, punching, those big guitars, big bass, and it rolls along. Oh, man, I just, yeah, it just gives you goosebumps every time you hear it. I th- it does me anyway.
0: All right, we'll move on to number four. Sounds good. Number four. Okay, my number four is Gimme Danger from the album Raw Power in 1973. So this is a a Stooges track. Yeah, with with Gimme Danger, like Raw Power, that LP is, you know, it's, it's blistering heat and powerful for the majority of it. Whereas this one... Sort of comes across a little bit more like a bit cooler, a little bit doors esque,
1: yes, would you say? Definitely.
0: But then as the, the song builds, it becomes more demonic, more yeah. foreboding. And mate, it starts with that acoustic guitar, that yeah. riff that Williamson put together. Yeah. Then after the first verse, so the whole first verse is acoustic and then it sort of comes back into the normal well, not the normal sound, but it's got the electric guitar back into it and then finishes that regard. But my favorite part is around the one minute 47 mark, goes on this rambling guitar masterclass with these psychedelic undertones through it.
1: Stooges thing again. The Rolling Stones were singing "Gimme Shelter," the Stooges were singing "Gimme Danger." Now I've read that Iggy was uh, again. I, I mentioned that he was always exposing himself. He was well hung. there's no secret. And according to Kathy Ashton, which was Ron Ashton's sister, the girls were just throwing themselves at him. They were just they just you know. And he was trying. That was if you listen to the song carefully, he was trying to concentrate on the music and. But he wanted the dangerous girls. He didn't want mm. standard groupies. He found them boring. He wanted the girls that were a bit wild, like seriously wild and get him into trouble. That's what he wanted. So yeah, gimme danger, brilliant. It's it's. Uh, I mean, that album again is fantastic. All right, mate. Your number four. My number four is TVI. Okay, this is a powerful one. Yeah, this again. I'm really is...
0: interested to get your rundown of this. I've only I've listened to it, but I don't know it very well and.
1: Phenomenal guitar work. I mean, if you're a Rage Against Machine fan, you can hear where the guitars come from. That one, old Tom Rolo must have pinched it. And that's good, you know, it kind of triggered the memories, I suppose. But yeah, the, it, the, the guitar work is phenomenal on that track. So TVI is just phenomenal. It stands for Twat vi uh coined by Kathy Ashton, which was Ron's sister. And she noticed all the guys keeping an eye on Iggy and he wanted to concentrate on the music. And again, Funhouse, it fits in perfect on that album because they'd all moved into a house which was fallen apart called Stooge Hall or Funhouse. And again, all the girls were throwing themselves at Iggy. There was lots they had a they had a friend at college that would or university that was medically qualified to distribute L S D. You know, so he had all the instructions on how you should take L S D and uh, obviously Iggy and the boys they'd sit and watch horror movies all night and take whatever they wanted and didn't obey the rules and it was all about this but yeah it's a it's a cracking tune the guitars the drums phenomenal It's quite disjointed and spread out. It's not; doesn't quite sound like a, the first Stooges album, Fun House. It's got a lot more smoother, tighter flow to it. And, um, yeah, those riffs, those opening riffs, I mean, you, like I say, you can hear where Tom Morello got his inspiration from. It's a corker of a tune. I absolutely love it. Number three.
0: My number three, this one was a slow burn for me, and the song is Night Clubbing. Wow. Also from The Idiot, so it's my second song or second entry from The Idiot in 1977. Now, to me it feels like it's a, it's a piss take of the inane scene he found himself frequenting in, in Germany, the nightclub scene. It's a perfect piece to evoke the atmosphere and ambience of like a really sleazy, mm. nocturnal hot spot. Particularly when you sort of think back to the eighties, seventies, eighties, nineties. You know the nightclub scene back then, and how you even picture it in Europe. I guess the song itself has this
1: overall feeling of like complete emptiness. Yeah. Is they use an electric drum, uh, electric drum machine as well? That yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really straight. It's whoa. It's,
0: yeah, it's just this looping beat from this this drum machine. And it's funny because David Bowie wanted to get rid of the, the drum machine for the final take. And, and Pop he said, No. Pop, yeah, Pop said, <laughs> where, where is it here? No way. It's kick ass. It's better than a drummer.
1: So it's they really kept weird. it, in there.
0: yeah. But it's it's a really haunting song. It's got that oh. drum beat, the keyboard, these like real squalling guitars going through the background. But but then Pop, Iggy sings in this deadpan voice, almost it's almost like ghost
1: like. It sound the album covers black and white, and when you listen to those tracks on Idiot, it, it sounds like I can't. It sounds like it's in black and white. I can't really describe it. You know, it's got that like you just said that ghostly kind of moping. Yeah, um, industrial good. kind of misery. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like you know, they were on the good side. So, Char- uh, checkpoint Charlie was still there, and they went you used to go over and visit. But yeah, that album, it's definitely got that uh, miserable European weather feel to it. <laughs> yeah, well, whenever
0: I, whenever I hear the song, I just think emotionless. Oh, like it's just void of emotion. And, and,
1: and in his voice, you can hear sarcasm. Oh. oh, we're a nightclub. You know, he's, he can, <laughs> yeah. he's, you can hear sarcasm and a bit of laziness in his voice
0: when he sings And well, one of the lines is, oh, isn't it wild?
1: Yeah. We're a nightclub. The, the cocaine disco culture was becoming a bit of a, a fashion accessory and they were trying to get clean and, they're, and they're obviously I agree with you I think they're taking the piss out of all of it they just they can't be bothered with it you know Like they don't, I don't think they want a part of it but apparently they dabbled <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> apparently I, I, I don't know <laughs> yeah. I think there's
0: a real underlying theme of like alienation mm. in this song yeah. you know it's like the numbness of being amongst all these people you know these people we see new people but No one's sharing their joy. They're just these people that you see each night that you go out. But, you know, what do they really mean to you? Nothing, nothing at all. So, but yeah, my favourite line is, we see people, brand new people, there's something to see. Some interesting facts with that one is David Bowie plays the piano on it and the song's riff has been perceived as a mischievous quote of Gary Glitter's rock and roll. it's only when i read that that I, I played and i'm like yeah okay there is definitely some similar vibes there but i think it's hard not to sometimes there's probably a number of tracks over the the eras that have got some rock and roll guitar vibe because it was you know i think it's been reused in many ways the human league make there's, there's a number of bands that made covers of this grace jones made a cover but the human league cover I actually almost enjoy just as much. Okay. It's a little bit it's a, it's a minute shorter and a little bit quicker. And this song was also featured on the 1996 film Train Spotting. Same as Lust for Life. It's a
1: beast of a tune. Love it. Yeah. Uh, that nearly made it into my top five again. It's it's a it's a classic. oh you, your number three, big Four. Right, my number three is raw power.
0: Raw power, yes. Yes.
1: Because I mean I mean, where'd you start with it? I mean, raw power. Dance to the beat of the living dead. That's how he starts the track. I've read the lyrics and listened to the song over and over again. And again, sadly, it's probably about heroin addiction. You know, he's singing about raw power, raw power, honey, just won't quit. Raw power, I can feel it. Raw power, it can't be beat. Popping eyes and flashing feet. Don't you try, don't you try, tell me what to do. Everybody's always trying to tell me what to do. He always wanted to do what he wanted to do. Mm. And it's definitely got that double-edged sword of heroin addiction, And the raw power that the Stooges brought, you know, that that song uh, and Search and Destroy on that album is just, it's just a massive, huge track, you know. The opening riff, the guitar solo as well and the structure of the song, it's not like a usual, it's not a usual rock and roll song, it's a bit all over the place. And that's where James Williamson again just comes into full force with his genius guitar playing, you know, it's absolutely phenomenal. I can it.
0: on this song at all but I, I've been listening to it quite a bit recently and this might seem really bizarre but can you have a guess at what song that would have came out I think in the 50s that uh, that song reminds me of Great Balls of Fire oh, okay. by Jerry Lee Lewis now oh. the piano part of it and some of the vocals from Iggy in it, yeah. very much, you know, in Great Balls of Iowa, when he raises his voice, like in the, sort of a little bit of a falsetto.
1: It was made for you and me. The power, power,
0: honey, just won't quit. The power, power, I can
1: feel it. The power, you can be chemistry. Again, if you listen to a lot of early studios tracks as well, you can hit some of those rolling bass lines. They remind me a little bit of the Motown thing as well. You can hear that, you can hear that sixties kind of influence in there. You know, you can hear a bit of that. That shallalala, you can you can definitely hear that influence in there. They just turned it into a monstrous chainsaw kind of lawnmower sounding guitar. You know, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Can you imagine? I mean, these guys as well. Back in the day, they didn't tour like conventional bands today. They just turn up without their instruments, try and get some instruments from somewhere because they were always wrecked, and just try and play a gig. And can you imagine just going to a club in LA or whatever back then and just going to watch a bat? And then these guys come on like Iggy half naked. James Williamson pumping out those huge, big sounds that hadn't been done before, you know? Like, you know, the Stones were good. The the Dead Zeppelin, they're all awesome, but they weren't as vicious and aggressive as what the Stooges were, you know? And that was, again, early 70, 71, 72. So just a brutal song group. Raw power, I love it.
0: Okay, well, we're on to our twos. We're getting to the pointy end. Number two. Now, this number two, I really love this selection, and... I will give kudos where it's deserved because my good audiophile mate, Chippy, who's been on the show a couple of times already, put me onto this one and I've just fallen completely in love with it. And the, the song is called Dirt from Funhouse in 1970. So this seven minute dirge is one of the most extraordinarily sleazy bass songs imaginable. It Feels like the sound of sex and submission made into music, and just builds and peaks slowly. This is my take on it, anyway, because I think some people think it's it, it might be about Iggy's struggles at that time, but other people think it's sex. But when I heard the two theories, I'm like, it feels like it's that grimy sex. Mm. You know, it's not having having a root with the, the love of your life. Yeah, yeah. It's having a root with whatever. It, 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 it kind of goes back to the gimme danger a little bit. You it know? does. It you does know, for it's sure. like. I'm just, here and now, let's, you know, dirt, let's get into it. And it features these really gritty funk blues guitar riffs and they just immediately win me over. I think iggy's vocals are really distinctive in this one as well another really good performance from him and the sexual connotations in it make it feel like it's it's a disgusting act but iggy doesn't give a shit yeah well, he's like you yeah. know yeah this is fucked up this is yeah but let's just you know let's get it on let's because i don't care you know that's what i want right now and the the music itself the way it sort of just plods along it's it's like a grinding slow dance but it's, it's really dense at the same time and the lyrics are raw and intensive and it's got really powerful drumming but, I mean, the bass line's my favourite part to it. Around the 3 minute 24 mark, Ron reminds Ashton's...
1: Me, reminds me of the Doors track a bit as well. It's got a Doors feel to it. It does. And he loved Jim Morrison, you know, like he, he was a big fan of Jim.
0: Yeah, quite a few of his songs
1: have got, like, just... Just little hints, you know? Yeah, yeah,
0: Um, I I agree completely. But, yeah, this guitar solo that kicks in around 3 minutes 24, I think expresses the experience of sex even better than the vocals. Just, it's sort of got these spurts, and it it heightens, and it lowers, and it heightens, and the intensity changes. It it just, I don't know, it it feels like this solo part of the song is, is meant to represent, like, the orgasmic experience of this grimy sex
1: There's a couple of meanings in there because he sings in it. Oh, I've been hurt, but I don't care because I'm burning. Uh, I, yes to what you've said for sure, but also that it's kind of—I reckon he was confessing that it was a bit of a danger to himself as well. I think he, he loved mm. all that. I think he, I think he jumped. something speaking like he's dead, but he—he he, he <laughs> just jumped into whatever was in front of him and just didn't care. You know, he just done it. Um, but he always managed to pull himself back and get himself better as well you know like when he got really sick and was in a mess he managed to get himself right again but there's definitely I think a definite undercurrent Mm. of a danger to himself as well he's there's a lot going on in that track yeah Uh, and I've heard people say that they that's their favorite track ever and they can't explain why you know so it's it's a bloody good tune
0: okay your number two big guy
1: my number two again it nearly made number one but (sighs) I just, yeah, my number one's got a good story and I just, yeah. But Tonight made number two. Tonight on the uh, Lost for Life album is just, I mean, again, that collaboration with Bowie, it just surfaced something new to Iggy that he probably didn't know. And the content of the song, you know. I saw my baby, she was turning blue. That's how the song starts. And it's like, whoa, you know, like he's, for me, I mean, the whole instrumental on it is brilliant. It's got a lot of soaring. Everything soars in different directions, and it's it's a well put together tune. It's well produced, but those lyrics, man, like the, it, it, it's a brutal confrontation. Obviously, two addicts. He comes home. He finds her in a state. And at the end, he's singing, "I'll, I'll see you in the sky." And yeah, I get the impression she dies. singing about that back then either. You know, he was singing about something its horrendous. But the song itself sounds oh, uplifting. It sounds like a beautiful love song. yeah. But when you listen to the lyrics, it's wow. it's, its very dark, you know. It's really dark.
0: This This song was to be my honourable mention, but because I knew it was in your five, I didn't mention it earlier. But, man, the David Bowie influence on this song is... Like, you could swear... Yeah, it was even the way he sings it. I I, when I first heard it, I was walking around the house, and it came on. Oh, it skipped over to a David Bowie song, and I thought it was David Bowie singing, but it was Iggy. His influence was incredible, and and David Bowie actually released his own version five years, a few years later, I forget how many years, I think it was like nine eighty four, and it had a reggae style to it.
1: I didn't like that. I got to no. Honest. I didn't like it either. Uh, but I, I, China. His version of China Girl was good, but I still prefer Diggy's. That that was awesome too. But um, but yeah, tonight is a yeah. is a brilliant tune.
0: It is amazing tune.
1: Yeah, I think Bowie definitely bought the. It's weird when they talk. He they sort of when he speaks about Bowie, he talks of him as a friend. But it sort of sounds like he keeps him at a distance. It didn't sound like they got super close. But they lived in a they lived in that apartment in Berlin. Yeah, those the lyrics for tonight. I mean they're brilliant and the the soaring guitars and the it sort of swishes and swoos you know like and the do 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 you know that that guitar work from Bowie. I mean he plays guitar on that correct, does not oh, he I'm it. not sure man yeah I'm sure it's yeah he does
0: So all, all of these songs, were they all written by Iggy? Or were they co-written? Or was there portions ser- that he had other people? I, I just,
1: I I've, don't re- know. I've read that book, and I'm certain that most of it was Iggy, but Bowie had a lot of influence on it. It doesn't actually say like 60-40 or 50-50, but it was it was Iggy writing the majority of the tunes. Yeah. So, okay. um, But yeah, and he was trying to get clean, obviously. He was trying to get healthy. and um, yeah. But tonight, I mean, again, I don't get bored of listening to it. It's a brilliant tune. Number one. You're at your number one, mate. Wow, what's it going to (laughs) be?
0: Well, my number one, as Chippy said a few times, sometimes the most popular song might be the right song for you. And this might not be the most popular, but it is definitely one of his most recognisable tracks. It's not Lust for Life. It's not Real World Child. It's not Candy, but it is The Passenger. Now... I've loved this song for a long, long time, and and that's why it it wasn't ousted by Dirt at this point in time. So I pick The Passenger predominantly because I will play it happily. I've always had it in my my greatest playlists, so I hear it on high rotation, and I I just love it, love it, love it. I think the, the part that I love the most is how it's got those clipped guitar riffs, I love the lyrics. It's, uh pertaining to Iggy's frequent nocturnal rides in David Bowie's car around both Europe and North America during the mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. Iggy, in an interview, stated that he didn't have a driver's licence or a vehicle at that time. Would he ever have actually been in a position to be able to drive? Definitely not. <laughs> so it, it, he said it felt like he was almost in Dave, David's car all the time. Mm-hmm. And... So this passenger theme came along where he was just staring out the window all the time because I couldn't imagine he was in any brilliant state anyway the whole time that they were driving. And, and you know, in the lyrics he talks about the, the hollow sky and the stars and all, and all the rest of it. The guitar riff on it is, has become a real classic, very recognisable, and it was, it was pulled together by a Scottish guitarist called Ricky Gardner, mm. and he was also the guitarist on, on Low, for David Bowie and Lust for Life, and it's become a really recognisable rock staple now. And he stated, when I was invited to join David and Iggy in Berlin, I did not realise that they needed material, so I was unprepared when they asked me if I had anything. Gardner played them this chord sequence on an unplugged Stratocaster. Iggy abandoned the raunchiness and bravado of the Stooges and concentrated on the romantic side of the lyrics, inspired by... A Jim
1: Morrison poem. Yeah, I heard that. The Jim. I've tried to find the Jim Morrison poem, and I can't. I don't know what it is.
0: So we're getting a lot of Doors references tonight. It's starting to lean towards. We're going to have to do a Doors episode down the track. But yeah, it's got that modified swing tempo and reggae inspired guitar, and it it just in this instance it, it provides a perfect mood for for Iggy's lyrics. And you know, this is not a traditional Iggy. Sounding song, like it it is a little bit more poppy, and it's got that famous singing "la la la." Also, this song was released originally as a B-side. It wasn't a single. To it was a B-side to the song "Success." And as well. this is probably the most important thing about this song. David Hasselhoff does a cover of it in his 2021 album called Party Your Hasselhoff.
1: I am the passenger and I ride and I ride.
0: I ride through the city's backside.
1: Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The Hoff. Here we go. So, my number 1 is uh, is this I could do like I could do another number 5. Uh, top five, you know, after seventy seven, you know, because he released so many albums. But I've I, I've gone with, and I I only remembered this recently, but I've always listened to it, uh, and I've gone with "I Got a Right." Mm-hmm. And the reason I went with this song is because, uh, like again, back to my mate sat on his bed reading Melody Maker, and I remember seeing that image of him bent backwards. You Google it, like it or search the image, and you can see him bent backwards, and that was. There was a spread about this band called the Stooges. And I was like, oh, another band. You know, because at the time I was listening to all these cool bands and uh, you know, it was 90s. And anyway, so I went downtown because I was at school and we used to get a set amount of pocket money given to us by like the headmaster each week or our school teacher. And you, know, you you could buy I mean an album back then would have been like seven quid, you know, like six or seven quid, sometimes ten quid if it was like a double cassette or whatever. 'Cause when you saw these images of all these cool legends, all these people that you were reading about, you couldn't just YouTube it then. There was no YouTube or download and have a quick listen. There was none of that. So I was like, Oh, oh well, let's do forget about them. Well not forget about them, but I'll I'll catch up with them one day because I had all these other cool tunes that I was listening to. So I bought this magazine and from memory it was the enemy. And at the time, they were... They'd always give away cassette tapes of all these, like, rare B-sides and forgotten tracks. And they were doing this Rough Trade spin-off where they had the actual record company. It was, like, ten tunes on it from memory. And there was, like, Pavement and Mud Honey and the Pixies were on there. There was some cracking stuff on there. And I was like, yes, yeah, sweet! There was a Stooges track on the end. And it was the last track on this free, like, album. And it was I got a right. Now, you imagine, I'm, I'm a grumpy little teenager probably 12 or 13 years old, something like that, and then on comes this track. I mean, listen to it. Listen to the original version. It is absolutely relentless. It starts like a freight train and just boom, boom, boom. It just, it just storms you. Like, and I had these crappy old earphones. They were distorted because I was always blasting Dinosaur Junior and smashing pumpkins down them. And again, if you, I'm trying to describe it, but you have to listen to it with a set of headphones on live. I got a right, and it's just about a young man wanting to do what he wants to do. It's simple lyrics. There's nothing much to it, and it is absolutely relentless. And it just it just starts and finishes, and that is what a punk rock, rock uh, tune should be. It was actually taken off Raw Power. It was an outtake. It was sort of cast aside from Raw Power. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And again, James Williamson on the guitar. I mean, it's just absolutely ferocious. I've got a really interesting quote here from the legend that is Johnny Marr from the Smiths, uh, if you're any any Smiths fans out there. And he said of James Williamson, he has the technical ability of Jimmy Page without being a studious and the swagger of Keith Richards without being a sloppy. He's both demonic and intellectual, almost how you would expect Darth Vader would sound if he was in a band. (laughs) I mean, if I was... like I only read that sort of fairly recently, but when I was a kid, I heard that chainsaw guitar come, through, just that vicious guitar come through, and yeah, to be described as Darth Vader on the guitar. I mean, if that was me being just, that was I would just be made up of that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but yeah, that tune I got to write is just, it's just ferocious. It's my number one tune because I think that's how a punk rock song should sound.
0: I love that ferocious, story. just. I think that is a much more appropriate number one than mine for the Godfather of Punk. Oh, it's mate. like you could not get a better punk song, mate. I'm so happy you came on today. Um, seriously, I think you're going to be a star for the show. Mate,
1: I can't wait to come back and I'll bring. Oh yeah, I missed. I forgot my notes and um, yeah, but I've got a lot in my head and I'm, yeah, I'll bring my notes next
0: time. Mate, so you're, you're, a, you're a natural storyteller <laughs> and. As long as we keep getting you onto the the artists that you know and love, I think you're gonna share and and add a lot to our listeners' live. So I really appreciate that. Now, as per tradition over the last since we started two episodes ago, you get a choice of three artists for your next episode, which will be in the next month or so. So these are your three choices. Pearl Jam, Ooh. Stone Roses,
1: Ooh. or Tom. Whites. <laughs> right.
0: What do you want to roll with?
1: Oh, I'm going to go with Pole Jam because the, the, the three that I've fallen back on, the three bands that I've fallen back on the most recently have always been Iggy, Pole Jam, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Every single time. It's just those go-to album uh, artists that I always put on, you know.
0: okay well thank you so much for listening again to episode seven uh radiohead is following very very soon and make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to it on and join us on our facebook group Hulsh fidelity apart from that thank you very much i hope you enjoyed the playlist